Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast recording of the Doctrine and Covenants of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Even though this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort has been made to be as doctrinally and historically accurate as possible. Every day a new section of the Doctrine and Covenants will be released. I hope that you'll visit this often and be able to share this uh, with your friends. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the Doctrine and Covenants podcast. This will be for section 68. I'm going to read you the heading first. Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet at Hiram, Ohio, November 1st, 1831. In response to prayer that the mind of the Lord be made known concerning Orson Hyde, Luke S. Johnson, Lyman E. Johnson, and William E. McClellan. Although part of this revelation was directed toward these four men, much of the content pertains to the whole church. This revelation was expanded under Joseph Smith's direction when it was published in, 18, in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. Originally, this revelation did not contain verses 15 to 21, which were added by the prophet in June 1835 in the Kirtland reprint of the evening in the Morning Star, when further information about the structure of the church, including the organization of the First Presidency, had been revealed. So let me go ahead and get started into this. Verse 1, my servant Orson Hyde. Now, a little bit, a little background about Orson Hyde. Orson was two weeks younger than Joseph Smith and orphaned by the age of 12. Orson Hyde was a clerk in Newell Whitney's store in Kirtland and was a minister in the same Reformed Baptist movement as Sidney Rigdon and Parley P. Pratt. Brother Hyde had been baptized into the church by his friend Sidney Rigdon one month before Doctrine and Covenant 68 was received and had been a high priest at this time for only a week. As a new member bearing the responsibilities of the high priesthood, Orson wanted to know the Lord's will concerning him. Continuing verse 1, was called by his ordination to proclaim the everlasting gospel by the Spirit of the living God, from people to people and from land to land in the congregations of the wicked in their synagogues, reasoning with and expounding all scriptures unto them. The prophecy in this verse was literally fulfilled. Orson Hyde proclaimed the gospel from people to people, from land to land. In 1832, he and Samuel H. Smith traveled in the states of New York, Massachusetts, Maine, and Rhode Island, 2,000 miles on foot. In 1835, he was ordained an apostle, and in 1837, he went on a mission to England. In 1840, he was sent on a mission to Jerusalem. He crossed the ocean, traveled through England and Germany, visited Constantinople, Cairo, and Alexandria, and finally reached the Holy City. On October the 24th, 1841, he went up on the Mount of Olives and offered a prayer dedicating Palestine for the gathering of the Jews. There's a, a spot, a garden spot on the Mount of Olives today that has, uh, that's called the Orson Hyde Park. And it has on there the prayer that was offered uh, by Orson Hyde. And that's a, a piece of real estate that, uh, that the church maintains Verse 2, And behold, and lo, this is an ensample, or an example, unto all those who are ordained unto this priesthood, meaning the office of a high priest, whose mission is appointed unto them to go forth. And this is the ensample unto them, that they shall speak as they are moved upon by the Holy Ghost. Some leaders are taught not to prepare a specific talk for meetings, but to be prepared to speak by the Holy Ghost what the Lord wants said. 
Bruce R. McConkie said, Those who preach by the power of the Holy Ghost use the Scriptures as their basic source of knowledge and doctrine. They begin with what the Lord has before revealed to other inspired men, but it is the practice of the Lord to give added knowledge to those upon whose hearts the true meanings and intents of the Scriptures have been impressed. Many great doctrinal revelations come to those who preach from the Scriptures. When they are in tune with the infinite, the Lord lets them know, first, the full and complete meaning of the Scriptures they are expounding, and then he oft-times expands their views so that new truths flit in upon them, and they learn added things that those who do not follow such a course can never know. In a living, growing divine church, new truths will come from time to time, and old truths will be applied with new vigor to new situations, all under the under the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. That sounds like uh, Bruce R. McConkie knew by personal experience that that was true, doesn't it? That as he uh, studied the gospel and memorized scriptures, that more knowledge and information about the gospel was given to him, and he related that to us in a lot of his writings. The four elders to whom this revelation was given are simply the example of the principle that applies to all the faithful elders of my church. All are to teach by the power of the Holy Ghost. All are to know by the spirit of revelation that what they are teaching is true, and all are to be enlightened by the Spirit as they teach. Joseph Smith taught that no man can receive the Holy Ghost without receiving revelation. The Holy Ghost is a revelator. Verse 4, And whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, shall be scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. It must be remembered that this revelation was given to four elders sent forth to teach the message of the restoration. They did not hold the office of apostle or seventy, for these offices had not yet been restored. By the world's standard, they were too young to be learned in theology, but their God loved young men who had faith. The oldest of their number was 26. None of them had been a member of the church for more than a few months. The formal instruction they had received in its doctrines and practices could be counted in hours or days at the most. Their success depended on their companionship with the Holy Spirit. The path they marked would yet be followed by countless others. Nowhere in the Bible is the spirit of revelation to find. Nowhere in that marvelous book do we find a definition of Scripture. Here, with a single sentence, the prophet sweeps away cobwebs woven of darkness and confusion that for centuries have blocked the light of heaven. Scripture is the mind of the Lord, the will of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. Its source is the Holy Ghost, and all, the, and all who by the laying on of hands have received the promise of the companionship of that member of the Godhead, at the same time assume the obligation to witness of him and of his gospel. They are to speak scripture, anything spoken by the Father, Son, or Holy Ghost, by the angels of heaven, or by mortal man, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, is scripture. Such spoken words are the will, mind, word, and voice of the Lord. Since it is comparatively rare thing for mortal man to hear the personal voice of deity or to converse with angels, it follows that most scriptural utterances are given to man by revelation from the Holy Ghost. These statements made by the power of the Holy Spirit consist of the identical words which the Lord himself would speak under the same circumstances. They are indeed the Lord's words because he authorizes and directs the Holy Ghost to influence and guide men in giving utterance to them. It is by the power and guidance of the Holy Ghost that spirit person, personage, who as a member of the Godhead has power to speak with uttering, with unerring certainty to the spirit within man, that the saints have the mind of Christ. 
That is, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, the saints are enabled to think what our Lord thinks, to give voice to the very words he does, or would speak, and to act as he would act in the same situation. What is true of the mortal saints is also true of the heavenly saints, for angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. All scripture is true. It is, com it is composed wholly and solely of pure, unvarnished, irrefutable, and eternal truth. Thy word, O God, is truth, John said. By the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things. That's Moroni. All scripture comes by revelation. Whenever any revealed truth is expressed in words, those words are scripture. The Holy Ghost is a revelator. Joseph Smith said, No man can receive the Holy Ghost without receiving revelations. And when those revelations are either spoken or written, they are scripture. Most scripture has been, is now, and will continue to be oral and unrecorded. Throughout the length and breadth of his earthly kingdom, the Lord's agents are frequently moved upon to speak, testify, prophesy, exhort, expound, preach, and teach by the power of the Holy Ghost. Such inspired utterances benefit and bless those who speak them and the spiritually endowed among the hearers. That was by Bruce R. McConkie. It is not to be thought that every word spoken by the general authorities is inspired or that they are moved upon by the Holy Ghost in everything they read and write. Now, you keep that in mind. I don't care what his position is. If he writes something or speaks something that goes beyond anything that, can, that you can find in the standard church works, unless that one be the prophet, seer, and revelator, please note that one exception, you may immediately say, well, that is his own idea. And if he says something that contradicts what is found in the standard church works, I think that is why we call them standard. It is the standard measure of all that men teach. You may know by that same token that it is false, regardless of the position of the man who says it. That was by Harold B. Lee. J. Reuben Clark said, In considering the problem involved here, it should be in mind that some of the general authorities have had assignment to them a special calling. They possess a special gift. They are sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators, which gives them a special spiritual endowment in connection with their teaching of the, of the people. They have the right, the power, and authority to declare the mind and will of God to his people, subject to the overall power and authority of the president of the church. Others of the general authorities are not given this special spiritual endowment and authority covering their teaching. They have a resulting limitation, and the resulting limitation upon their power and authority in teaching applies to every other officer and member of the church, for none of them is spiritually endowed as a prophet, seer, and revelator. Furthermore, as just indicated, the president of the church has a further and special spiritual endowment in this respect, for he is the prophet, seer, and revelator for the whole church. Here we must have in mind, must know, that only the president of the church, the presiding high priest, is sustained as prophet, seer, and revelator for the church, and he alone has the right to receive revelations for the church, either new or amendatory, or to give authoritative interpretations of Scripture that shall be binding on the church or change in any way the existing doctrines of the church. He is God's sole mouthpiece on earth for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the only true church. He alone may declare the mind and will of God to his people. No officer of any other church in the world has this high right and lofty prerogative. So when any other person, irrespective of who he is, undertakes to do any of these things, you may know he is not moved upon by the Holy Ghost. In so speaking, unless he has author uh, special author authorization from the president of the church. 
That was by J. Reuben Clark. Verse 5, Behold, this is the promise of the Lord unto you, O ye my servants. Wherefore, be of good cheer, and do not fear, for I the Lord am with you, and will, and will stand by you. And ye shall bear record of me, even Jesus Christ, that I am the Son of the living God, that I was, that I am, and that I am to come. This is the word of the Lord unto you, my servant Orson Hyde, and also unto my servant Luke Johnson, and unto my servant Lyman Johnson, and unto my servant William E. McClellan, and unto all the faithful elders of my church. Missionary work is a priesthood responsibility. Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, acting in the authority which I have given you, baptizing in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. And he that believeth shall be blessed with signs following, even as it is written. And unto you it shall be given to know the signs of the times, and the signs of the coming of the Son of Man, and of any and of as many as the Father shall bear record, to you shall be given power to seal them up unto eternal life. Amen. And now concerning the items in addition to the covenants and commandments, they are these. Now remember, this is uh, the, the, the part that was added uh, in 1835. There remain hereafter in the due time of the Lord other bishops to be set apart into the church to, to minister even according to the first. Where, therefore, or wherefore, they shall be high priests who are worthy, and they shall be appointed by the first presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood, except they be literal descendants of Aaron. So the, this is telling us that bishops will be uh, approved by the first presidency of the church, which still exists today. And if they be literal descendants of Aaron, they have a legal right to the bishopric if they are the firstborn among the sons of Aaron. For the firstborn holds the right of the presidency over this priesthood and the keys or authority of the same. No man has a legal right to this office to hold the keys of this priesthood except he be a literal descendant and the firstborn of Aaron. So we need to, d to clarify some of the stuff here that's talked about uh, the first uh, or the bishop that's uh, a descendant of Aaron. Joseph Ealing Smith said, There are some t men in the church who have been blessed by patriarchs and pronounced descendants of Levi, but they have not made any claim to the office of bishop for the revelation governing this situation says literal descendant of Aaron, not of Levi. There is evidently a great host of men who are descendants of Levi, but not of Aaron. The person spoken of in the revelations as having the right by lineage to the bishopric is the one who is the firstborn. By virtue of his birth, he is entitled to hold the keys or authority of the same. This has reference only to the one who presides over the Aaronic priesthood. It has no reference whatever to bishops of wards. Further, such a one must be designated by the first presidency of the church and receive his anointing and ordination under their hands. The, the revelation comes from the presidency, not from a, the patriarch, to establish a claim to the right to preside in this office. In the absence of knowledge concerning such a descendant, any high priest chosen by the presidency may hold the office of presiding bishop and serve with counselors. So in other words, this uh, this person that's a literal descendant of Aaron is, is to be the presiding bishop of the church, not a bishop of a ward. Verse 19, but as a high priest of the Melchizedek priesthood has authority to officiate in all the lesser offices, he may officiate in the office of bishop when no literal descendant of Aaron can be found, provided he is called and set apart and ordained into this power under the hands of the first presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood. And a literal descendant of Aaron also must be designated by this presidency and found worthy and anointed and ordained under the hands of this presidency. Otherwise, they are not legally authorized to officiate in their priesthood. The office of presiding bishop of the church is the same as the office which was held by Aaron. It was this 
office which came to John the Baptist, and it was by virtue of the fact that he held the keys of this power and ministry that he was sent to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery to restore that priesthood on May the 15th, 1829. The person who has the legal right to the presiding to this presiding office has not been discovered, perhaps is not in the church, but should it be shown by revelation that there is one who is the firstborn among the sons of Aaron, and thus entitled by birthright to this pre- presidency, he could claim his anointing and the right to that office in the church, keeping in mind, however, that he still needs to be approved by the first presidency of the church. Verse 21, but by virtue of the, of the decree concerning their right of the priesthood descending from father to son, they may claim their anointing if at any time they can prove their lineage or do ascertain it by revelation from the Lord under the hands of the above-named presidency. And again, no bishop or high priest who shall be set apart for this ministry shall be tried or condemned for any crime, save it be f- by, before the first presidency of the church. And inasmuch as he is found guilty before this presidency by testimony that cannot be impeached, he shall be condemned. This has reference to the presiding bishop, not a, a ward bishop. And if he repent, he shall be forgiven according to the covenants and commandments of the church. And again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion or in any of her stakes which are organized that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost, by the laying on of the hands when eight years old, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. The sin is not teaching their children, not the children's sins. Herobelisi Harold B. Lee said, and in that same inspired declaration by revelation, the Lord gave us what we might style as a five-point program by which parents could teach faith. First, he said, their children were to be baptized when they had reached the age of accountability at eight years. Second, they were to be taught to pray. Third, they were to be taught to walk uprightly before the Lord. Fourth, they were, in the, they were to be taught to keep the Sabbath day holy. And fifth, they were to be schooled not to be idle, either in the church or in, the, in their private lives. All parents who have followed that formula and have so taught their children have reaped the reward of an increased faith in their family, which has stood and will yet stand the test of the difficulties into which their children would yet go. Verse 26, For this shall be a law unto the inhabitants of Zion, or in any of her stakes which are organized, and their children shall be baptized for the remission of their sins when eight years old, and receive the laying on of the hands. And they shall also teach their children to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. To give life to is to assume responsibility for that life. That responsibility reaches well beyond food, shelter, and clothe, and to clothe Uh, to embrace acceptable behavior and eventually the ability to provide for themselves. Here the Lord makes it a matter of divine responsibility for parents to teach their children the truths of salvation and to raise them in faith. There can be little surprise in this. They are his children too. We are a covenant people, and when a man and woman go to the house of the Lord to receive that promise that their love can be eternal, that they can continue as husband and wife in the worlds to come, and that their posterity can surround them, we can only expect that the author of the covenant will require something of us in return. Certainly that which is required includes the responsibility to plant in the hearts of our children the desire to marry in the temple, and the responsibility to raise our sons with a desire to serve as missionaries. We occasionally hear parents say that it is for the children to decide whether they will attend church, be baptized, abide by the standards of the church, serve missions, and so forth. We are left to wonder if these same parents give their children the same freedom of choice where their education is concerned or in the choice of foods they eat or the medicine they take when ill. 
that their right of agency must be protected is beyond question. What is not beyond question is the degree of agency or the extent of the choices that are granted to them as children. Is it not is it for the junior high school student to choose not to go to school? Should elementary school children have complete freedom of choice as to the foods they eat or when they go to bed or what is acceptable behavior and what is not? The degree of responsibility to control such decisions in the temporal realm differs little from the responsibility parents have in the realm of spiritual things. Surely we would not want to argue that parents have responsibility for the physical well-being of their children, but not their spiritual well-being. For the physical well-being. I think I said that wrong. Okay, that was by uh, Joseph Fielding McConkie. Verse 29. And the inhabitants of Zion shall also observe the, spirit, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the inhabitants of Zion also shall remember their labors, inasmuch as they are appointed to labor in all faithfulness. For the idler shall be had in remembrance before the Lord. Now I, the Lord, am not well pleased with the inhabitants of Zion, for their are idlers among them, and their children are also growing up in wickedness. They also seek not earnestly the riches of eternity, but their eyes are full of greediness. These things ought not to be, and must be done away from among them. Wherefore, let my servant Oliver Cowdery carry these sayings unto the land of Zion. And a commandment I give unto them, that he that observeth not his prayers before the Lord in the season thereof, let him be had in remembrance before the judge or bishop of my people." These sayings are true and faithful. Wherefore, transgress them not, neither take therefrom. Behold, I am Alpha and Omega, I and I come quickly. Amen. I bear testimony that these things are true and that as we um, understand better the principles of uh, teaching our children and also the responsibilities of a bishop, I pray that we might have a better understanding of the gospel in general. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. See you next time. I hope. Bye.